these people will tell you we're gonna take the statue of the Virgin Mary and put it in the jar of fists and that's so stunning and brave and powerful and it speaks to something really profound and if you don't understand it that's because you're a fucking idiot and now when I call these people idiots now they turn into the religious conservatives like how dare you call Mark Rothko an idiot for masturbating into the paint that he put into that painting like how dare you this is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Welcome to this week's semi-educational, quasi-entertaining feature. We have the honor of speaking to Saifedina Moose. If you're listening to this, we recommend you check out the YouTube video just to see Safe sport some badass red sunglasses. Safe is the celebrated author of the Bitcoin Standard, everyone's go-to book for orange-pilling the uninitiated. Safe recently dropped his most recent book, Principles of Economics. If you want to have a holistic understanding of the tenets of Austrian economics, this is the book for you. We highly recommend it. In this chat, we cover some ground. We slander dead economists and scientists. We steal man fiat money, we ruminate about what science actually is. We toss pejoratives at shitcoin bag holders, and we watch a full-blown takedown of modern art. We give Safe the opportunity to defend his stainless steel pans. Safe does not pull any punches in this episode whatsoever. Fast and loose is our preferred modus operandi, and Safe sent this one. Fast and loose is a blast in conversation, but when you want to protect valuables, you want steady and secure. You want an airtight, conservative, and well-tested device. The cold card has been measured, tested, and found to be the ultimate solution for Bitcoin cold storage. It is the industry standard for protecting your valuable Bitcoin for perpetuity. We have been using cold cards for years and highly recommend them to friends and family when they ask what they should use to protect their Bitcoin. Use code BCB for 5% off the Mark IV. It's getting chilly here in Chicago, and if you've been thinking about mining Bitcoin and could use a space heater, take a look at the HeatBit Mini. This is a plug-and-play device that is a space heater, a Bitcoin miner, and an air purifier. Use code BCB for 5% off. All right, now buckle up for this conversation with Saifedean Amus. We were just ruminating about Safe's book on economics and how much easier it is to get through than most tomes on economics, specifically the one that you're emulating and taking tons of ideas from, which is human action, the great Mises himself. And it's, it's just written for modernity. Like we can understand it. And it's, you know, you're taking and harnessing all of those ideas and just making them accessible. You know, it's the, we had the King James Bible. Now we have the new, uh, the new, t- what shoot, Dan, help me out here. What's NLT, the NLT, the NLT, there's there a lot of watered yeah. down King James versions out we there. We got to be careful yep. though. We don't want to, we don't want to go too much into the religion. We don't want to piss one. off too many Christians safe. We've done that on this show plenty. Um, yeah, I've done that on my Twitter today as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the title of this podcast Thank or the, the intro phrase we, we shill is we talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, we talk shit. And my hope today, Josh, is that we can really dig into that third one and, and get yeah. safe unhinged. He showed up. If you're not on YouTube, he's here with some fucking sick red sunglasses. I think he's ready to rip. I think he's, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm seeing red. Yeah, let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love to hear it. 
A little interjection here. We like our job as firefighters, and we like this podcast. So in the spirit of keeping both of our jobs operating, we had to pull a bit of audio right before this segment. Basically, we just gave a bit too much info about a crazy patient. And it made me think of this quote from Carl Sagan's book, The Demon Haunted World, back in... This is what Josh thinks about on the way to the hospital, by the way. Well, I mean, after I had already written the report, this lady's clearly physically fine. She's just crazy. So I'm looking this not not while I'm in the ambulance for, for any of the chiefs listening. This was, you know, after it was all done. His quote from this book is crazy. He wrote in 1995, I have a foreboding of an America in my children's or grandchildren's time when the United States is a service and information economy, when nearly all the manufacturing industries have slipped away to other countries, when awesome technological powers are in the hands of very few and no one representing the public interest can even grasp the issues. When the people have lost their ability to set their own agendas or knowledgeably question those in authority, when clutching our crystals and nervously consulting our horoscopes, our critical faculties in decline, unable to distinguish between what feels good and what's true, we slide almost without noticing back into superstition and darkness. That quote really got me. And so then from there, I'm just giving you my whole story arc of like this, this crazy rabbit hole I went through that night, Richard Feynman came to mind because he's always somebody to attack pseudoscience. And he has this great article called the cargo cult, cargo cult science, where he attacks two sciences, quote unquote, sciences, specifically psychology and economics. And this was written in 1974. So he's very focused on Keynesian economics. And he basically calls it a pseudoscience because it's not reproducible, falsifiable or empirical. And the question I'm driving at over this long intro here is, Safe, do you think that any economics is actually science or would it be better characterized as a pseudoscience? Kind of like the climate, there's just so many variables that cannot be pinned down to be reproduced. Can we consider any of it a science at all? Well, it depends on what you mean by science. So in um, in, in, in the prevalent definition of science, I think no, economics is not a science. I think in and I think the um, mainstream economics, the stuff that's taught at universities, is perfect example of cargo cult science and pseudoscience. It's um, it, it, it's it fits the textbook definition because um, it's all these completely unsubstantiated beliefs that they just tell you are the case because this very wise uh, old uh, pedophile called John Maynard Keynes <laughs> believed them. And of course, you must believe them as well because you need to believe pedophiles. Yeah, believe really all pedophiles is the motto of our era. <laughs> I did. Um, I, I, I'm pretty confident. I'm, I'm not, maybe not confident, but I'm quite hopeful. You know, 100 years from now, Bitcoin uh, wins and people, are, if if anybody's going to remember who John Maynard Keynes, they're going to remember him because he was mentioned in the Bitcoin standard as the pedophile. That was why I stuck that <laughs> in there because nobody's going to be reading macro <laughs> textbooks. And I I, I'm go- I I decided that you know if Bitcoin wins, and if my book is uh, remembered as a Bitcoin economics book, Keynes is just going to go down as the pedophile. That's what's right. I, I hope to be the one who pisses on his grave for eternity. Um, but uh, the um, yeah, it, it is a pseudoscience. So the whole idea of macroeconomics is that the state of the economy is determined by the level of spending. If you have too much spending, more spending than production, it's a completely meaningless construct. 
that there is a value of production and there's a level of spending. And somehow these two things are different from one another. And if the level of spending is higher than the value of the production, then you have inflation. If the level of spending is lower than the value of the production, then you have recession and unemployment. Completely baseless, completely unfounded belief. Absolutely nothing supports this. There's no reason why anyone with a brain would think this is true. And yet these idiots have been running around believing this for, what is it now, almost 90 years. And they just continue to believe it. And when it doesn't work, it's because we didn't believe it hard enough. We we didn't worship, uh, we, di- we didn't dance properly enough for the rain to come down. That's why. It's not that rain dances don't work. It's that our dancing wasn't dedicated enough. Um, so no, modern economics is a pseudoscience. You could say that um, the Austrian approach to economics, I, I you could say that it is... Well, first of all, let's agree on what science is. Science is experiments. Science is, is just a method mm. of answering questions. And this idea that uh, this is a very fiat idea, the idea that a thing called a science exists and it has a set of prescriptions is a, a completely fiat idea. The, we don't have a science as a set of pronouncements. We have a scientific method of asking questions, experimenting, exactly. and then determining it. And that's obviously completely gone out of the window. And I, so um, uh, I, you said you wanted me to be unhinged today, so I'm just going to go ahead and uh, go back right back at you <laughs> with Carl Sagan, who, in my opinion, is a great example of uh, a, a pseudoscientist because he claims to be all of these wonderful things about science, but... He, as far as I can tell, and as far as ChatGPT can tell, Carl Sagan, uh, Carl Sagan never did an experiment in his life. There is no record of him doing any actual experimentation. He just sat there at fiat-funded universities, getting paid money to tell people what to believe is science and what is not science. So he's making fun of people who use crystals and people who uh, do all these kinds of things. But he was promoting equally idiotic nonsense like climate change and all of that garbage, which is also completely pseudoscientific garbage. He had nothing bad to say about the macroeconomists down the hall from his uh, department who were his colleagues. He uh, never had anything critical to say about all of the pseudosciences taught at university. He went along with all of that. He got government funding and he, his job was, he was an actor who got on TV and told people, you have to believe science. And the important conclusions of science is, A, God does not exist. B, you are completely inconsequential and meaningless because you live in a very large, very, 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 very large universe with billions upon billions upon billions of stars. And so you're completely inconsequential and so you don't matter. So shut the fuck up and listen to what we tell you. And uh, just, you know, we need to keep printing money and handing it out to people to tell you how to live your life. That's the conception of science. Like he never actually did any actual experiments. Um, there's no record of that. So... I find his uh, his he, he exhortations. Did, he did against... put golden records on voyagers and send them off to aliens, though. We, I mean, he did do that, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, he blew up a bunch of rockets. But this is what it comes down to. Like we discovered rockets, and we discovered te- telecommunication, and then these people just put themselves in a position where, all right, we're going to run those things, and then because we have them and you don't, you're just going to have to go by what we say. We found out from those things, and that's science. And so the real bait and switch here is that 
they sell you science as, oh, we used to live in this world where the priests controlled everything and the priests told you what to believe. And then we got rid of the priests and we replaced it with rationalism and science and experimentation and all these amazing ideas. And then the switch part is, so shut the fuck up and listen to us. We are the ones who uh, determine what is science. And now, you know, what is it that he's said that is actually an experiment? What is it that is testable? What is it that has a hypothesis? Nothing. It's all, I saw this in my telescope and therefore... Uh, you have to believe what I say, and therefore your life is meaningless, and I know everything. God, we've got Safe in the perfect frame of mind today, Josh. Absolutely Dude, did you perfect. get triggered by crystals, Safe? I feel like the crystals thing kind of triggered you there. No, but honestly, I'm <laughs> curious now. I'm like, he's talking about the crystals. That must be something there because, like, he was. He, he yeah, I don't know what change. that was exactly, but that's in the preface of the book. That quote came to mind. I had read that book recently, but yeah, thank you for that, though. That was. Dude, you're nailing that. That is exactly dead on as far as like pseudoscience is concerned. And I actually had never really thought about the fact that Carl Sagan himself, I, I haven't done that much research on his background, but it, it would be interesting to find out what actual science he had done besides being an actor. Clowns can spew wisdom every once in a while. Yeah, I went through his Wikipedia page. There's nothing uh, that's remotely scientific there. And then uh, somebody uh, asked ChatGPT, which I thought was a very cool idea. Because ChatGPT has read a whole bunch of stuff, so they'd come across, you know, well, he did an experiment for this or that, and, and ChatGPT said, uh, we don't know if he did uh, the experiments he's known for his public communication of science, and that's it's a huge red flag. It's just, yeah, he's out there telling people what science should be telling them. He's not actually doing any science. So he's the, he's the new priest, basically. Follow-up question here to maybe poke some Bitcoiners and some macro folk of which that was our primary interest before we found Bitcoin. But to get into kind of useless exercises and analysis, which you love to do, you love to point out the, the pointless quantitative whatever it is in the world. How much attention do you pay to, say, quarterly macro headwinds? I actually don't know what your answer is going to be here. Treasury market, equities, liquidity, repo yeah. markets, Fed meetings, this type of thing. How helpful do you think this is? Once someone has the big picture, is it Great worth question. their time and energy? How much of that assessment do you actually do week to week, month to month? And do you find it beneficial or not? Practically nothing. Since the um, last few years, since basically becoming convinced of the Bitcoin thesis and just um, moving on to a Bitcoin world, I don't think about that stuff at all. And I think this is really the... One of the one of the main value propositions of Bitcoin that you're not out there trying to outguess mm. everybody else in the market. The extent of my interest in the market right now is that I check TLT, which is Treasury Long Bonds, and then every time it makes a new low, I post on Twitter dunking on the bond bros and uh, the fiat <laughs> bros. But that's about it. Uh, that that's the extent of my following. And then, you know, when uh, like when. Um, when Nassim Talib was going on about we're heading for a big stock market crash, I was curious about that. So I was following the stock market for that period. And uh, he said that in January and the stock market put in the best, one of the best six months on record right after he said it when he was... Mm. And, and his hedge like fund a Kramer indicator and, there. Yeah, and, and, he, and his hedge fund went and shorted it. So really, I only follow this stuff for the purposes of dunking on fiat people. I don't 
care about it in terms of the money. And I think it's just um, because, like, if you try and follow it, it's really, really, really difficult. You're better off following professional sports and gambling on professional sports. You probably get uh, better results because it's harder to rig professional sports because everybody's watching and there's a referee and there's uh, video cameras everywhere. It's, it's becoming much harder to rig professional sports. And because like you can make sense of professional sports, like, you can tell this team's defense is crappy and that team's attack is good. They're likely going to uh, concede a lot of goals, so let's put money on that. I think that's probably a, a wiser use of your time because if you look at what's happening with the fiat markets, everything is rigged. Um, and I mean, it's saying that it is rigged is not some kind of uh, conspiracy theory. It's rigged because the Fed is out there and it is a it is the main market maker in all of these markets, and the banks that own the Fed, a uh, little fun trivia fact, most people don't know the Fed is not a government agency. The Fed is owned by its constituent banks. The banks that own the Fed are out there uh, making the market. And so there's a small group of people that have an enormously outsized influence on what's going to happen in the stock market and the bond market and all of these fiat markets. And... Uh, you don't know what they're trying to do. You can't get into their shoes. You don't know whether they want the, you know, they, they want to make sure that the stock market doesn't tank because it's election season, or they want to make sure that the bonds don't tank because of this or that. And it, it's really difficult. And I think the last year, last year and a half, has been an absolute slap in the face for anybody who thinks that anybody, but I'd say the vast majority of fiat people got a massive slap in the face because. As soon as the Fed started hiking, everybody said, all right, we've seen this movie before. We know how it ends. They start hiking. We get a recession. Stock market crashes. Bond market rallies. That was the idea as soon as the hikes started. Mm -hmm. And so all the smart money, all the smart analysts, all the hedge fund geniuses, all of these people went long bonds, short stocks. And instead... We've had an incredible rally in the stock market, and we've had a devastating, devastating, beautiful, gorgeous destruction of the bond market and the fucking retards <laughs> who buy bonds. And it's just been heartwarming. You have to really have a heart of stone not to cry with joy at watching the kind of people who lend to governments uh, get wrecked. Um, so it's it's They're really not done getting wrecked either. No, no, they're not, and 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 the fiat media is telling them now's the time to buy. You know, it's 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 real shit, coiner. I was on Twitter looking at TLT as a hashtag and kind of reading the whatever the random people's thoughts on it were. It seems like the general consensus right now is this is a buy the dip opportunity. Like, let's jump on board. Like, this is unprecedented, and it's going to do nothing but go up from here. <laughs> so it's going to be fun to watch this continue to just crush souls in that market. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you know, I, I don't have strong opinions. It may recover, it may rally, but even if it does rally, the only way that it's going to be rallying is in nominal terms, and that's going to mean uh, massive devaluation because realistically, there's there's no way that, uh, that, that it can rally in real terms because these governments are extremely, extremely broke, and so there's very difficult... Uh, it's very difficult to see a way out of this fiscally. We're, if you look at how the um, budget deficit is rising and how the uh, debt is rising, 
it's difficult to see a way out of this. It's difficult to see that uh, they could rally from it. But you know, the the beautiful thing about it is that you and I can joke and speculate about it. But because we've discovered Bitcoin, we don't have to put our family's yes. future on this. We can talk about it like we talk about a soccer game. You know, I think this team's going to win. No, I think that team's going to win. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm right. We watch the game and then we banter a little bit about it. And that's it. It's not our life savings and not our family's future that's riding on this soccer game. And that's really the biggest problem with being in the fiat world. And I think this is this is just what it comes down to, why Bitcoin is so important. Because with Bitcoin, you've got one simple thesis, which is no one can make more than 21 million. That's it. And around 1% of the world has Bitcoin so far. Somewhere between 1% and 5% of humanity has Bitcoin, I'm going to guess. And uh, 5%, I think, is probably too high of an estimate. But that's it. Nobody can make more of it. If you just understand why nobody's going to be able to make more Bitcoins, then you just save in Bitcoin. And over time, I expect this to outperform everything else. And so there's no point in trying to second guess what's going to happen with stocks, what's going to happen with bonds, what's going to happen with foreign exchange currencies. What's going to happen with commodities? What's going to happen with monetary policy? Who who knows about all this stuff? And, you know, I know people and most of these big-brained hedge fund guys, all of these institutional investors, all of these big banks. I mean, the vast majority of these people can't beat the S&P 500. They can't just beat buy and hold S&P right. 500, let alone beat Bitcoin. So... It, they spend all day, every day, following everything, watching Bloomberg and CNBC and having alerts on their phone and having a million charts and a million uh, things on their Bloomberg terminal blowing up every second and just living in a flood of noise in order to try and figure out what's going on. And they still can't beat the S&P 500. So what hope do you have while you're out there doing an actual job instead of just gambling on the fiat markets? What hope does the average dentist or doctor or firefighter or author or Amen. anybody who's got an actual productive job out there. Yeah, you can't you can't be productive at your job focused at it and also moonlight as a hedge fund manager who beats the S and B. Totally no, cannot do it. Um Safe, you're such a bombastic character. I love the way you you characterize everything with the way you really think. Like most people have to kind of censor the way they approach things or they feel like they have to, you know, that's just like the the world we live in today. What I'm having a really hard time doing is picturing you as a professor and holding it together while teaching Keynesian <laughs> economics. <laughs> Can you tell us how in the world did you manage to do that without getting fired? And then yeah. did you slip in? I mean, when you did have questions that, about the things that didn't make sense, did you slip in some Austrian stuff back in the day? How did your story arc go from traditional Keynesian economics teacher, pr- professor to today. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, to, to, uh, I I had it in my mind that I had to do the job as a professional. As soon as I finished my PhD, there was, um, there was a very, very big craving for me to get an actual job. I'd gotten so sick of being in academics. I'd been a student all my life. I went straight from uh, school, university, grad school, and then by the end of it, I, uh, as I was writing my PhD, the last couple of years of your PhD, you're not doing anything except you're writing PhD. The real horror that I had was, uh, remember that scene from uh, the Shining film where Jack Nicholson spends uh, 
he goes with his wife to some resort and he spends months writing and then she looks at what he's written and it's got hundreds of pages of the same sentence over and over again. Thing. Yeah, and uh, when you're in academia, you realize that's basically what everybody in academia is doing. Nobody reads academic papers. You could get away with writing the same sentence over and over and over again and nobody could really tell. And um, people have passed off, um, even before AI got good, You know, back in the 90s, people have passed off um, randomly generated sentences as academic papers before and got them published in journals. So nobody really has any um, any, any sense of production, any sense of producing anything valuable when you're working in academia. And that was truly frightening for me. And that was, um, I'd say, the, the, the point at which I felt the worst in my life at the end of my grad school because of the fact that I'm not doing anything. I'm just writing a piece of paper that's going to be read by five people on my committee and we're going to skim through it and then nobody else is going to read it and what kind of miserable existence is this I could be out there doing actual things that are productive I could be a firefighter doing something useful like you guys putting out actual fires and saving lives I could be baking things or making sandwiches or driving cabs or just doing something valuable so that other people could tell you thank you and then you feel good about yourself your existence matters so that's how that's the frame of mind with which I ended grad school. That set me up very well for wanting to do my job extremely professionally. So I just took the textbook and I thought to myself, how do I become the best economics professor these kids are ever going to have? It was I needed to do it because I needed to feel good at producing something. So there was a lot of professionalism with that, but of course, as you said, you know, uh, uh, you can't just completely cover up uh, who you are. So the way that I managed to pull that off was that you know, I'd give them the explanation of the Keynesian stuff, and then I'd when, when it stops making sense to them, when it becomes clear to them that, hey, this doesn't make sense, then I'd tell them what's actually going on. Tell them, well, you see, this doesn't... I, I remember there was always this thing, and this became like my uh, my trademark. So I'd explain the Keynesian theory... And I'd look at the kids and I'd say, does this make sense? And, you know, they don't want to say no. So most of them are just kind right. of nodding. And then there's always one guy who goes and says, no, it doesn't make sense. And then I ask him, what's your major? And it would almost always, almost always, it would be the engineer. So we had engineering students taking the macroeconomics classes. Mm. And it would be the engineer. And yeah. I said, you must be an engineering student. He's like, Yes. I said, of course, it doesn't make sense because you're right, <laughs> because you don't get it. You're right. It doesn't make sense. This, and then I'll just explain to them why you see what's going on here is you're being sold a scam. And the point of the scam is to convince you that printing money is good. <laughs> That's it. And so if you understand that this is an elaborate lie for people who just want to print your money and devalue it, it all begins to make sense. And indeed, it does make sense. And then you can understand it better from the Keynesian perspective once you understand what's going on. Once you, once you see the strings pulling the puppet, you get to understand what this puppet is. It's it's no longer this mysterious thing. How does this make sense? Oh, it does make sense. It's an elaborate lie to print money. And this was in Lebanon. And then I, I quit my university job in 2019. And then in 2020, so many of my students would email me or message me on Facebook. The, yeah, you were right. It is all just an excuse for money printing because then they had the hyperinflation in Lebanon in 2020. And they all did it. And, and they would all, uh, there were so many who would post about it. 
over. <laughs> it was my, I, I used to tell them, look, if you're ever confused in an exam and you're not sure which answer is, well, which is the answer to the question, just go with money printing. The closest answer to money printing is usually the right answer. That's what you <laughs> to get to. And it's true. Always the, 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 the student, it's stuck with the students that anytime anything goes wrong, the answer is to just print money and then, mm. and that, and, and that's the way to fix it. So that's how I managed to do it. And I'd say, I think I did a good job of, of it because I at once explained the concepts uh, that they were supposed to learn because after all, you know, I couldn't just spend the entire class talking Austrian economics because these kids would then be required, uh, at least the econ majors would go on to study intermediate macro. So they needed to know the um, beginner level stuff before they could move on. Or uh, for the advanced classes, you know, they might go to um, grad school or something. So I had to teach them the the stuff that's in the textbook. And I also had to yeah, it was satisfy my conscience and give them something that is real and actually teach them something that's useful. Yeah. Well, good for you for weaseling your way out of that <clears throat> giant machine. You're right. You're trapped in a huge sort of progression of education where you have to teach the next level while also trying to insert independent thinking at the current level. It's a manifestation of, and you've, you've, riffed on this ad nauseum, but it's it's a very powerful theme of just how backwards and poor the incentives are in, in higher education and academia. And one thing we've been talking about on this show more recently, Safe, is just the idea that weak money has really led to weak skill sets and a weak workforce. Like the number of soft, supple, plush wusses out there, like well into their 30s, doing nothing, really adding nothing, doing nothing, and able to keep kicking the can down the road is startling. I mean, you ask our parents or our parents' parents, it's it's changed a lot. And I think much of that goes back to first principles. Here's my question with that. Assuming, conceding that you probably agree that a lot of people are pursuing tracks they shouldn't and sort of disincentivized from, from really finding productive skill sets. As you look at the next generation, as you look at today's youth, what sort of skill sets do you think should be honed that are going to be marketable for decades to come? What what comes to mind first? Uh, you know, it's a difficult question to answer. Um, I think the most obvious answer, and the one that I usually give, and the one that I used to, uh, that I used to tell my um, my students at university, is coding. I think coding is a huge one, um, and I think it's. It's huge because it involves a very high amount of productivity. So you can code your moving machines and the machines are moved by code and machines are enormously productive. So coding is, is, is a very powerful skill. I'd say also writing is a very powerful skill because writing is also, it's it's like programming humans. So you're giving knowledge to humans and it's it's enormously valuable because it's enormously valuable at the level of being able to communicate um, the things that you want in a workplace, whatever workplace you want to be able to write an email that explains what you want from your uh, bosses or your subordinates or your colleagues. You want to be able to write it properly. You want to be able to communicate what you want. And I think it's enormously valuable as a skill. I, I, I'm, I mean, I am a writer and a big fan of writing and um, I do all my work uh, 
is done through email. I, you know, I've run a, a, my website where I teach my courses and um, sell my books. I run the entire thing on email. We don't do meetings. We don't do phone calls. Whatever you want to do, you sit down, you write it in an email, and you send it. And then you get to read it when you have the people. The recipient gets to read it when they want, and they can respond. And it's just an enormous, enormous increase in productivity. You're able to communicate effectively through email and through writing, rather than being able to, rather than needing to meet, because that's just so much more expensive in terms of time. So I'd say writing and coding are two good things. I don't know. I sometimes I wonder whether all of this AI stuff is going to maybe decrease the uh, premium on coding. I'm not so sure. I think it's going to increase the productivity of coding. Yeah, it, it mm-hmm. it's going to increase the productivity, but I, I'm not sure whether the ability to write code is itself what's going to remain very important because it seems to me like the most valuable thing that the uh, AI is going to be doing is that it can handle the code right. while it can interact with people who just talk to it. Exactly. Like somebody like myself, no coding background, very little, done a little bit of, I took a couple of Khan Academy classes on it, but using ChatGPT, I've had it write me a couple of different programs that for myself, I'd have absolutely no idea where to begin. And it's able to do it based on just some pretty simple text prompts, put together a a small application that I can run on my Mac and do exactly what I ask it to do. It's, It's crazy and it's limited for now, but the speed with which these things are moving it's hard to, I mean, like you said, that's a very difficult question. And I don't know what I'm going to tell my kids when they get to the, be the age where they're going to have to choose something to go to school for. I really have no idea because yeah. coding could be completely captured by chat GPT agents in 10 years or five years. And so, I mean, so much writing could be and so much of, so much of what we do in general, accounting might be something that we don't even do anymore. I don't know. It's just a really, really strange time. I don't think it's a comparable time to any time in history besides maybe the industrial revolution when everyone was like, well, what is this electricity thing going to do? Whose job is it going to take? And it turned out okay, obviously. It didn't take all the jobs that we thought it would, and it produced a whole bunch of new jobs. Right. But AI is an entirely different animal, it seems. I don't think it's very different. I think it's going to be the same. I think it's going to take away jobs, but it's going to produce a lot more jobs, and it's going to increase our productivity. Um but yeah, it's difficult to be able to tell. It was difficult to tell what was going to happen, what kind of useful skills you wanted to have as soon as electricity was getting invented. So there's the obvious one, which is you sell electricity. But even with that, it wasn't very obvious how you go about acquiring the skills that are good for it. I'd say what I'd give as a solid advice without having to um, hedge and... Uh, beat around the bush and uh, uh, qualify. What I'd give as solid advice is to just get out there and work in the market and serve people and figure out what people want and figure out what you can provide for people and have the flexibility to change your mind to move around. I think this is really the key skill that most uh, people who succeed in doing whatever it is that they do, whatever it is, in whatever field, that's the valuable one. You just get out there and you figure out how you can help people and 
you follow the money. That's really what capitalism is. That's what markets are. It's an, it's an incredible technology that we have for telling you where to go by just following what pays. If people will pay you for something, that means Absolutely. that's 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 the way you can provide value. So figure out how you get paid and then figure out how you get paid better, how you can do your job at a shorter period of time, more productively, how you can produce more output from it. And if you just have that mentality of understanding that the market is not some evil conspiracy out there to get you, it's, the machines are not conspiring to make you poor, it's out there, it's, it, it, it's, it's a conspiracy to make you rich. You just need to plug into it and figure out what's going on, figure out what people want to pay you for. That's really what it comes down to, I think. I just had, I called the plumber yesterday because my water heater is kind of going out. I want to get a tankless water heater. The guy quoted me $5,000 to install it. And looking at these things up, they're about $1,500. I know I can do the work myself. I've done it before, so I'll probably do it myself. But there's your indicator, people. Like this guy is going to pay $1,500 for the water heater. He's going to show up for, you know, he's going to do five or 10 of these a week. And he's making five, he's making $3,000 every time he puts one in. Like there isn't a market indicator to like, go be a plumber. Chat GPT is not taking that job anytime soon. Um, yeah. Exactly what characterizing what you're talking about there, safe. Yeah. Well, in the general principle, back to the, the overarching t- conversation about economics of centralized policymakers getting in the way and thwarting and misconstruing signals that inhibits people's ability to to find their niche in the marketplace. You juxtapose that against the Austrian approach of really getting out of the way. If I was to summarize the Austrian approach, and here's, here's a Hayek quote you had in the book in principles, the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. Get the fuck out of the way. Let the market decide. But in order to do that, the price of money needs to be accurate. And so my hope, my optimistic hope for society is as we restore those signals, it is going to be easier for folks to do what you just articulated, Safe, which is follow the money, follow the price signals, and and flow to the low ground. That's where you're going to get rewarded for, for hard work and effort and ideation. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, with plumbing, chat GPT or some other technologies might actually... Um, get rid of this guy's massive premium that he makes from installing this there might somebody might invent something that you buy directly for two thousand dollars and then you just plug it in it's a plug and play solution for your water heater that you don't even need to get the plumber but they the, the important thing is yeah follow the market signals if you get into this plumbing business stay on your toes so that you're always on top of it so that when this new thing comes along that's going to get you uh that's going to take away your job you want to be at the forefront of taking away your job by replacing it with something else you want to be the guy who gets is the first to get that thing into your town so that you're the one profiting from you losing your job you just need to have that mentality i think that's that's what really matters and it's difficult to give advice beyond that i think because people's dispositions are very different and people's skill sets are very different that nobody really knows everything. So it's, it's very difficult to say you should get into coding or you should get into plumbing or you should get into this or that, but you should just be on your toes yep. and follow the signals of the market. I think that's that that's the one advice that sticks for everybody. Totally agree. Hey, before we get off the F- economics topic, and you can you can keep this somewhat brief if you want, 
you did a fair amount of what I'm about to ask actually in the fiat standard. I think you steel manned fiat currency about as well as anyone I've seen for a long time in the beginning of that book. I remember being like, wow, this had to be a challenging exercise for you. But I'd like you to do just that. If you had to flip over to the other side and and steel man the Keynesian approach or 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 give some credence to that perspective, how would you how would you do that? Well, let's not let's not do the Keynesian approach because I think that's just completely and utterly indefensible. But I could steel man fiat money in general, yeah. Um, without getting too much into Keynesian theory, I'd say um, the fact of the matter is that by the 19th century, our technology for moving stuff around and for moving information around started uh, advancing so much that it was a lot faster than our ability to move our money around. And our money back then was uh, gold. And it, it, we could have people trading goods, moving goods around, very quickly because you could put them on trains, you could put them on ships and cars and then airplanes. And uh, on the other hand, you could also, a lot of money, a lot of uh, money is information. So you could actually just send it by telegraph and telegram and all of these uh, very fast technologies. So economic activity started moving at a very fast pace and money couldn't keep up. And that necessarily means that Anybody who is willing to give up on using the physical money and having it in hand and is willing to take a credit representation of that money at a bank instead of it is going to save enormously on transaction fees. So if you run a business and you're willing to take payment by check or by <clears throat> other kinds of bank payments that are essentially credit, rather than actually taking physical gold you're going to save enormously. In fact, this was the de facto state of the art by the end of the 19th century. The majority of trading was taking place either through paper money, which is backed by gold, or credit backed by gold. And so the steel man here would be that you inevitably have this, and that is a, inevitably a centralizing technology. And so you have uh, every city is going to have its main bank and every country is going to have a main central bank that connects these countries together. And so you're going to end up with a monopoly on this because it's just naturally tends towards centralization because the more centralized it is, the more efficient it is. And so, um, well, if I were to read a steel man, so the, I guess the, 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 the usual status argument would be it's going to have to be uh, you'd rather want it to be the government. You would rather have the government in charge of that monopoly rather than having a private entity. Um, I gonna, That's kind of a normative approach, but I'm going to just do the... Or sorry, that's a positivist approach. Uh, but I could just even say a... Um, uh, but I could, I could say a value-free um, uh, argument for it, which is that whoever ends up in charge of that bank is going to end up in charge of the government because they can just buy the biggest guns effectively. And so we inevitably tended toward that system wherein the guns and the money had to be in the same hands because you couldn't have the central bank without government acceptance and government blessing. And 
that meant they had to be married. That meant that that marriage had to happen between the two, between money and the state, because of the centralization of money under the gold standard. And then you've opened Pandora's box because now you've established a monopoly. And, well, initially you could argue that the monopoly was a market monopoly or a market tendency towards centralization, but eventually it's going to become a market uh, a state monopoly because now you have the guns attached to it and nobody can compete with the guns. And so therefore you've got an enormous margin for inflation there, wherein not everybody's going to show up and ask for their gold on the same day because there's so much value to be had for keeping the gold on hand. Uh, sorry, keeping the gold on gold in the bank rather than having it on hand. And so therefore that allows a lot of room for inflationary uh, credit expansion by the central bank and the state. And you've opened Pandora's box. And so then it's yep. futile to say, let's close down Pandora's box. Then we get into a world where it's a challenge for, I want to unleash that Pandora's box to do what I want. And that's 20th century yes. politics. Mm. So we have no choice. Right. Uh, we're, the genie is out of the bottle, and we have to fight over what the genie is going to do and what wishes we're going to ask him to grant. Uh, we can't just wish for the genie to go back. Totally agree. What you just described, the coordination between the banks and the governments and how all of these intersecting, you know, they're all kind of moving in the same direction. They've got, you know, this revolving door between large banks and the government. This is all very predictable and why Thomas Jefferson said a couple hundred years ago that central banks are more dangerous than standing armies because he understood that inevitably they coalesce into the same thing. Amazing how prophetic some people have been over the years and how short-sighted many politicians are compared to some of the statesmen we used to have. It's a sad uh, commentary, really. Yeah, and, and I, I'm going to piggyback on that and say... I don't know that this is going to steel man Keynesianism, but it's going to shed some light on why it's an obvious outcome. And this goes back to just follow the incentives, follow the money. What That new portal you're talking about, right? Pandora's box getting open. A new teat emerged on the sow and piglets are going to swarm around it and get fed. Whether it's right or not, that's what happens in the fiat system, right? Milk is flowing. Underfed runts are going to want to get in there. You, it, it gets messy and it begs the question, do we need a new sow, right? Because when that comes to be, the piranhas are going to, to just absolutely swarm, right? And that's what happened in the fiat system. You have the ability for people to siphon off the top to get closest to the spigot. It's, it's an obvious outcome that would, I could argue, happen 10 times out of 10. And I think this is where Bitcoin really becomes... Yeah a significant and empowering mindfuck is you realize that there is really no solution other than going all the way back down to the base. You're not going to be able to regulate certain pigs to get milk here and then and make it fair. You've got to swipe the whole farm and reset from ground zero. Um, and that's, I think more and more people are realizing that, but I think that is the real realization. Well, it's a justification for the reasons they do what they do, right? Like, it's almost like this whole theory was built from reverse mm. instead of like theorizing, like, how can we make this work in a, in a more efficient way for the world? It's how can we justify our overreach and spending 
and and use the fiat money to benefit ourselves over other people? How can we create a system where this seems to be justified? And that is the angle, um, from my view, that Keynesian economics was created. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, I say I say we get into fiat 2.0 here and talk about shit coins. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. Back to getting you unhinged. I, I think what the moment we were like, okay, I, I just cannot wait to get him on is when you you called Ethereum the mother asshole of all shit coinery. If if I'm a, a finance bro coming to you with some capital to allocate, and I'm still sort of uh, raptured by the overall crypto thesis, and I don't have Bitcoin in a separate camp, where do you start with me? Uh, I just had this conversation a couple of days ago, actually, um, with uh, yeah, uh, Bank's general manager, who's uh, becoming curious, and uh, he asked why Bitcoin only. And I think the key point is this, and uh, Michael Saylor helps explain this. I think I'd spent a lot of years trying to make the point in a very Twitter kind of way. Uh, and, and then Michael Saylor really uh, pinpointed it and zeroed in on it. Ultimately, what it comes down to is this. Bitcoin is the only one that is a neutral protocol. And so therefore, it is, the, it is a digital commodity. It's like gold, like copper, like wheat. Anybody can mine it, grow it, produce it, sell it. There is no authority out there that is in charge of the world's copper market. Anyone can dig, get metals out of the earth, process them, and then produce copper and sell it on the market. And they can sell it to whoever they want. There's no mechanism for having the copper authority. There's no mechanism for somebody to just decide, well, you know what? We're going to increase the quantity of copper, reduce the quantity of copper. So all commodities are like that. And Bitcoin is like that. It's just a neutral protocol that exists. It's been out there for almost 15 years now. Nobody's been able to make more than the 21 million Everybody who thinks they can make more has pretty much given up at this point. There's no authority that is in charge of it. There's no ability to change its underlying fundamental principles of operation. And therefore, it's just something that anybody can trade. On the other hand, all these other coins, they are not central. They are not decentralized. They have periodic hard forks, particularly Ethereum. Uh, Hard forking is something they do several times a year. And so, therefore, all their um, main uh, properties are up for grabs every couple of months. The supply schedule has changed several times, and it may well change again. They went through a period where they had pretty high inflation, and then I kind of think I, I I I I hate to sound a little conceited here, but I may have trolled them into changing their monetary policy because like it was after the Bitcoin standard was published and then everybody in the crypto world started talking about Bitcoin sound money, hard money, uh, the, the, the supply growth rate that they created the new narrative. Yeah, exactly. They decided, well, this is the next thing. This is what we got to pivot to do. And you know, it's just a bunch of stupid uh, narratives that they're uh, jumping uh, from from one to the other all the time. It's, it's ICOs, no, it's NFTs, no, it's crypto kitties, no, it's uh, smart contracts, no, it's Turing Complete, no, it's this. It's just an endless buzzword salad where they're constantly shifting from one to the other. And then when uh, the sound money, low supply growth rate, low inflationary rate, the meme became a strong one because of Bitcoin, they went and decided, all right, let's just 
out Bitcoin, Bitcoin and uh, make it an ultrasound money where we can reduce the supply growth rate. And so then they started doing the right thing, which is eating the Ethereum supply. And hopefully they continue to do it until it gets to zero. But uh, I think recently it, they went back to inflationary. Now I think it's back to producing more. I don't really follow, but uh, who knows? So the question is, nobody has a, the, the point. What matters is that nobody has any idea how much Ethereum is going to be in 10 years time. Right. And there is a small group of people that if you got them in a room and you put a gun to their head, you can pretty much guarantee that you can change the Ethereum supply to whatever it is that you want. Uh, it's only a few nodes that control it. There are only a few people who know how to code it. Only a few people who uh, manage all of those things. That's why they can hard fork so easily. So with all of the other, and Ethereum is the least centralized, perhaps of all the other ones. Uh, so all of the rest of them, it's very trivial to find the team behind them and the team behind them can control it, but there's no team behind Bitcoin. And so with Bitcoin, you're dealing with something that is a commodity. Nobody controls it. Its supply is set in stone. And anyone can buy it, anyone can produce it, anyone can sell it. No one's in charge. It's a commodity. It's That's why th there is no moral or legal issue with somebody saying buy gold. Sorry, but somebody saying buy Bitcoin. It's a lot like saying buy gold, buy land, buy wheat, buy chicken, buy beef. It's just a thing that's out there and anyone can produce it and anyone can consume it, anyone can buy it. Whereas... With everything else, because there is an issuing party, you are dealing with the security. Mm. And this is really the point that Michael Saylor kept on. Uh, Michael Saylor really uh, introduced to this is, is the clarity of saying, look, if it's not Bitcoin, it's a security. And I, I think that's even more powerful than just saying that it's a shitcoin. They are shitcoins, but the technical term is that it's a security. And the reason that uh, there's nothing wrong with it being a security but there is something wrong with being a security and pretending that you're a decentralized commodity because yes. you're not a decentralized commodity. You're a security. And so um, that's 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 really, I think, the key issue, that you're dealing with an issuing counterparty that is pretending not to be there and pretending to be selling you a commodity that is similar to copper or gold. So there's fraud and there's a moral issue here, but even putting aside the morality issue, because you know, that doesn't really matter to most people these days, there's a massive risk issue. You could get rug pulled. They can rug pull you. This is this. These things are optimized for rug pulls. And there's protocol risk. Exactly. There's coding risk. There's all kinds of risks that you're signing up for. And ultimately, the the proof is in the pudding. There are more than twenty five thousand uh, altcoins out there. Out of these twenty five thousand, only a handful have outperformed Bitcoin. And they've outperformed it over short periods of time. And it's almost certain that they won't continue to outperform it. So the idea that you're going to be able to pick which one of these is going to outperform Bitcoin based on some theory, some hypothesis about what matters is complete nonsense. And even the, even, even the shitcoiners who pretend like, you know, there's all these shitcoin hedge fund bros who pretend like there's an actual thesis behind all of their stupid scams. I mean, they'll, they, they um, that they that they talk about the winners that they have. They they don't talk yes. about the many many. Yes, that's the Stratton Oakmont. I don't talk about my losers because I have so few. Yeah, well, no. <laughs> I would. That is really though what it comes down to. 
what it comes down to for Ethereum and all of these shitcoins really is credibility. You can only, you get burned through one cycle. Most rational, semi-intelligent people get into the space and they will get burned and they will realize quickly, none of these other, none of these other altcoins, shitcoins, whatever you want to call them, have credibility because they are centralized. They will be changed. Decentralized finance, quote unquote, has been halted multiple times. Solana is a complete joke. All of these things have no credibility in the end. And when that realization does strike people, they look around and they say, well, what does have credibility in the space? What hasn't changed? What cannot be changed? And the only answer to that question is a single, a single coin. Bitcoin is the only one. While we're talking about the mother asshole, though, I do want to ask your opinion on this. And I think this could go either way because we just can't predict where this is going to go. But I just want to hear your thoughts. Cucked Ethereum. When it does get, the state is going to co-op this thing if it hasn't C-E-T-H, already. C-E-T-H, cucked Ethereum. Yep, keep going. Yes. Do you believe that's going to get, it could get very valuable because that could be a tool that they want to use to perpetuate CBDCs, perpetuate a whole lot of other controlled centralized scams from the state's perspective. Uh, it does seem to be a competitor for Bitcoin in the shorter term uh, in that way. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, uh, if it, does succeed in that if it does become the CBDC if it does become the platform for these things the whole point of these things is to rob the holders so the whole point of government money is to finance government at the expense of the suckers who hold it so it's going to work out for the governments that produce this for the central banks that produce this it's not going to work out for the suckers that think they're going to front run them they're not going to let you front run them so I don't know how they're going to do it. I don't know if they're going to be doing it anyway. I mean, I think there's um, the serious technical uh, risk involved with dealing with the uh, mess that is DRM, with dealing with all the security risks that are involved in that. So it's not entirely clear to me that governments would want to do something like this. And it's not entirely clear to me what the value proposition is as opposed to just making a centralized CBDC, which is so much more efficient, so much faster. Um, I don't I, I don't particularly see this as a very likely scenario. I mean, it, it could happen. Who knows? I, I don't have a crystal ball, so maybe it does happen. But I think the important thing is that, um, yeah, I mean, this is just another one of these uh, many other fiat world games where you're gambling on things you don't understand and you're better off just following a sport and the gambling on your sports team. I think that's just what it really comes down to. It's a lot better to uh, put your money where you know what's going on. i still rather stick to the 21 million hypothesis Bitcoin rather than get into this minefield of potential rugs based on this idea that the world's central banks are going to put all of the global monetary system in the hands of Vitalik and his little unicorn elves <laughs> i i like your i like your quote a second ago of, of most cryptocurrencies are optimized for rug pulling I, I mean, we've been barking for a long time i mean in on the spectrum of decentralization the current current markets the current fiat system is far more decentralized than all of these large crypto protocols and so it's it's you know we've both just started reading uh crypto sovereignty and a new book out, Eric Kassan's book. And 
he spends a lot in the, a lot of time in the beginning, which is something a lot of us have said of crypto camouflage for Bitcoin. These two things aren't just different. They're polar opposite, polar opposite. Couldn't be any more different, but general consciousness still largely has them conflated. And for me, that just spells opportunity. As Bitcoin keeps humming along, not changing, accomplishing everything it's set out to do, um, the fact that people are confused and have it equated with something totally useless and vapid and and, and inefficient, and the list could go on. That, that's a good thing for the stacker of Bitcoin right now. It's just going to be really interesting, I agree, Josh, to see how long it takes for people to really get the difference. I mean, I'm totally open to the possibility that I think we could see, I think we maybe will see another huge Bitcoin uh, altcoin bull run where a whole new swath of individuals get butt-fucked and then see the light. I don't know how long it's going to go on, but I'm not necessarily saying it's over. Yeah, I uh, I agree. I don't... You think we're going to see another altcoin run, Safe? I, I think so. I think there probably will be. I, I, I'd like to think there wouldn't be, but uh, when a lot of money comes into Bitcoin, uh, I think there'll be more and more money out, out there, and it's going to go into... Um, shit coins but i think uh you know it's uh, it's it's a market and novelty so i don't know which shit coins are going to be the ones that yeah. capture that there's an enormous right. number of them out there What's... there's about twenty five thousand, i think at the last count so it's really anybody's guess which is going to uh take it off and uh past performance is no indicator of future performance and um, hindsight is uh, is always twenty twenty. So looking back, you know, you look back at the previous market and you say, well, obviously it was going to be these uh, coins that were going to moon because this. But if you look go back to twenty nineteen, and you try and think about which coins were going to do the best over the next four years, there's really very little to tell apart the ones that did well versus the one that didn't do well. Uh, they all had hype. They all had um, cognitively impaired uh, bag holders on Twitter <laughs> talking a big game about how they go to work. They all had false advertisement. They all had fraud. And they all had yeah. all of the basic ingredients, but only some of them um, mooned and the most of the rest did not. The The most entertaining thing from my perspective is always... so. In, in 2017, when I became aware of this whole space, it was ICOs, ICOs, which actually do make some sense in a way, like putting you, if you have a legit company and you want to disseminate securities about it and you're open about how these are actually securities, it's just a different way to kind of round about the whole SEC to fund your company, right? If you have a legit company, makes some sense. Then in this last bull run, when we watched people selling pictures of fucking rocks and JPEGs and millions of dollars going for like apes like wearing captain's hats that was like what the fuck is going on here like this is clearly like i've never in my life seen an indicator that a bull run is about to get blown up in a bunch of people's faces more than pictures of frogs <laughs> and monkeys selling for millions of dollars my question here is and this is pure speculation i'd like to hear your thoughts i don't really know where i'm where i'm thinking this is going to go but when this next one does blow up like what are we going to be what tops JPEGs and rocks for millions of dollars. What tops that? What can we do here? How could this be any more absurd? Oh, I don't know, man. I don't know. That Never underestimate the depths 
<laughs> oh, that human stupidity can fun. Uh, who knows? Who knows? I I, I really it's don't know. It's gonna be fun I to mean, watch, no matter what it is. Yeah, I mean, I guess the optimistic case. Let's let's try and make the optimistic case, which is that it's a high interest rate environment these days. We've got five uh, percent on the ten year. I think is the current going rate. So. Capital is harder to come by. Allocated capital into stupid things might be harder. So I guess the bullish case for humanity is that uh, Bitcoin moons and people can't afford to uh, get into the shitcoin industrial complex. Plus, you know, with all of the um, regulations that are happening against uh, shitcoins, it might lead to maybe something. Maybe it'll be a smaller bull run for the shitcoins. And I think perhaps one reason to be optimistic is that Bitcoin dominance is 54% or something like that at this point, which I think is absolutely amazing because to add another dollar of market cap on Bitcoin, since nobody can print Bitcoin, nobody can manipulate Bitcoin, nobody can decide... uh, Nobody can wash trade it. Well, I mean, you can wash trade it, but it's expensive. And ultimately, you have to have... There's a fixed supply of coins, and nobody can make more. So therefore, in order to add to Bitcoin's capitalization, you need an actual holder to hold another dollar worth of Bitcoin to add a dollar worth of market capitalization in dollar terms. But in order to add another dollar worth of market capitalization, you just need uh, a shitcoiner to list on an exchange and um, uh, wash trade with himself and then keep 90% of the supply locked and there you go. So here's a coin, 90% is uh, locked with me and here's 10% that's out there trading on an exchange that I'm trading with you and we list it on an exchange, we pay a few thousand dollars to get it listed on an exchange and then you and I are wash trading it and now we give it a value of $1 and we have... uh, a supply of a billion and here you go there's another billion dollar being added to the cryptocurrency market cap it's not it doesn't cost a billion dollars to add a billion dollars to shitcoin market caps it costs a billion dollars to add a billion dollars to bitcoin market cap and so the fact that this measure which is a flawed measure is still showing bitcoin at more than 50 percent is i think uh it is very significant and Maybe it'll get picked up on by people, but who knows? That's a really good mm-hmm. point. Really good point is yeah. I think that's underappreciated. How that metric is. I also totally agree. We have a real hurdle rate right now. There's an actual <laughs> discount rate that five percent's a lot different than zero percent, and it's going to be fascinating to watch whether that clears out a lot of this underbrush or not. Because it, it is a very very different environment to stand up bullshit right now than it was three years ago. Um, yeah. In turn, it, we have to get to this because Lynn Alden asked us to uh, get into it. We have to get into uh, skillets and cookware. Um, yes. Let's let you start. I think this is going to turn into a little bit of a debate, but uh, where do you stand on this, Safe? Uh, so let me tell the backstory here. I don't think I've told this before in public. Um, so I used to be there's no shame in admitting your mistakes. I used to be a cast iron person. I owned one. <laughs> I owned several of them. 
And I remember, like, the, the, I, I know where you guys come from. I, I know the sense <laughs> of superiority you feel because everybody else is just using nonstick bands and their life is easy. But you are taking the low time preference. You know, you're actually taking care of your pan. You season it and then you know how to use it and you don't wash it because washing is for weak people. And you, um, you know, it's very heavy and it's uh, passed on through generations. And you have a chip mm. on your shoulder because, you know, you are working for your pan rather than your pan working for you. And you think that that somehow makes you a better person. I was there. I know it. My wife and I used to spend a lot of time figuring out how to handle our, our cast iron pots. And then one day, I stayed at, a, an, at an Airbnb and they had stainless steel pans. And I, I, I remember having stainless steel pans growing up at the home. I remember my mom, my grandma had cooked with them before, and I, you know, I thought, oh, oh, look, it's it, it, it's these fiat pans. Now I'm gonna have to cook my steak in a regular fiat pan, unlike my cast iron pan. And so, nonetheless, you know, I beggars can't be choosers. I wasn't gonna go buy a cast iron for a few days stay at an Airbnb. So I go and I cook the steak in the stainless steel, and lo and behold, it just it and it was delicious and it worked and it was great i put the thing on the pan it worked i ate the steak it was great and then i finished and i went to wash it and it was just so effortless just it within a few seconds it was clean and it was back glistening and that's when i realized my life was a lie and uh, i <laughs> was living a lie and i didn't need to be lugging that giant monster around all the time and i didn't need to be seasoning a pan I didn't need to go just, uh, you know, get to a point, oh, no, it needs seasoning. And now you can't have steak unless you dedicate several hours of your day to seasoning this thing and putting it in an oven and reading instructions and doing all that stuff. And now, no, you just can't have steak. So it's a, the pan is not working. You need to season it. You don't have to do that. Stainless steel just works. And since wow. then, I just bought stainless steel, and now life is easy. Mm. Like, you just cook it, and it's very quick to wash, and so you don't even need to wash it. You can just put it in the dishwasher. And the key thing is, there's only two, there's only one thing that you need to know when you uh, make stainless, when you cook with stainless steel. You heat it up, and it takes very little time to get hot enough, but you have to make sure that it gets hot enough. And how do you know if it's hot enough? You put a little bit, a few drips of water on it, on the pan. Yes. And if the water mm -hmm. evaporates, then it's not ready. If the water evaporates as soon as you put it on it, then it's not ready. You need to wait a few more seconds. If the water starts jumping around the pan, moving around, the dots of water, are they don't evaporate, but they start moving around left and right, then it's ready. That's it. So if you just wait until that happens, you figure out how much time it takes to, that, uh, to get to that point, then you put the cooking fat and then uh, you grill the steak. That's it. And then the other thing which I found really useful is that if you, uh, when you're done, as soon as you're done, if you take it and you just add water to it immediately after you're done, it washes away almost everything. So the easiest way to do it usually is I just cook with it and then I just put the water on it, uh, washes almost everything. And then if you have a dishwasher, you just stick it in the dishwasher and the next day it's ready to go. And guess what? That works every day. There's no, you know, I have a few days off where now, oh no, we can't use it. We have to season it. I'm sorry, you can't have steaks. You know, go and eat your soy or whatever uh, because you can't have your steak because your pan isn't working. 
No, it's there every day. It doesn't care. It just does its job. How? So that all sounds great. What you described there is a lot of how the pan is easier to take care of. But the most important thing, the coup de gras here yeah. is how does that steak turn out? Is that crust nice, thick? So, like, is the crust as good on the stainless steel as it is on the uh, cast iron? Yeah. Yeah, yes. but the main the main piece of, the yeah. main piece of evidence I'm coming with here is the the heat retention and distribution on a good cast iron skillet is hard to beat, and the versatility because you can cook something stovetop, then throw it in the oven. That can come in handy. Obviously, the longevity. Although you ca- you came prepared, dude. I got to be honest. He came guns blazing, Josh. It's, we're up against the fucking wall here. Um, Dude, I'm gonna have to go back to back because I have both. Like I'm ambidextrous I'm when it comes to the pan choice here. I'm I'm gonna be real. I <laughs> I am, and I'll go Blackstone or you know Weber Grill too. But I'm gonna have to just. I'm actually cooking steaks tonight. I think I might do. I might do cast iron and stainless, and I will make this. I'll make this public Josh tonight. Josh is gonna settle see, it. We'll see which I think is better. Uh, we we do we'll we do play harder than we are safe. By the way, like we act like we're we're cast iron <laughs> maxis. This is going to piss a lot of people off. We're, we're bi-metallic. We are bi-metallic at the firehouse <laughs> and at our own houses. We've got both of them. But I will say, in the firehouse... That's a pretty woke thing to say, yeah. Dan. I mean, you right. go either way. Swing. Like, you'll go stainless. You'll go iron. Like, you don't really Metal care. Fluids. Like, whatever kind of appendage it has, you'll put yeah. it in your mouth. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the whole uh, the, the the whole idea that it, it, it tastes better, I don't think it's true. I, I've done blind tests before. I've had two steaks, and I, I've cooked... Uh, two steaks on cast iron and I've tried them it's 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 you can't really tell the difference and if you can tell the difference then that's because you're uh, probably eating rust from the cast iron and if you think that's a good thing <laughs> then you climatize yourself to the taste of rust and here's the news flash to all the cast iron uh, like the, it, you're not supposed to taste the pan you're supposed to taste you're supposed to taste the meat you're not supposed to taste the pan it's really about the meat and so if you're Attached to the taste of cast iron, you're just addicted to rust. <laughs> uh, it does. I will say that it it does hit close to home. I'm I'm highly triggered, Josh. We do every one of we have three houses at the department we're at, and there's a giant cast iron skillet at each one. Actually, so heavy, in fact, to bolster some of Safe's arguments that there's been a point where my fingers gotten stuck in that handle and I almost fucking feel like I broke my finger. That's how fucking heavy this thing is when it when it kind of goes sideways or gets awry. But that thing has cooked thousands of meals at our department, and I think that's pretty true around the country of fire fire stations. Bimetallic, uh, and wow, Safe, yeah, he came guns blazing, dude. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, we didn't even tell him we were going to ask him that, and he was fully prepared to defend yeah, I, I i saw lynn's tweet so i i came prepared i came prepared. he came ready but also <laughs> um, i think you know i'll make a concession i think i i've not tried the cast iron on fire as i've not tried uh stainless steel on fire i've always thought stainless steel is too nice to put on a fire so when i when i uh, make a fire and i want to sometimes i'll grill a steak I'll, I'll put the steak on a cast iron in the fire so i could see that i keep the cast iron for the fire just because i think the stainless steel is too nice to roll with fire okay some nuance maybe we can add have to the argument there. there yeah um i have we're probably wrapping up here but i just want to ask a general question about your experience writing the bitcoin standard and everything that happened after it how did you think the book was going to do safe 
Like it's it's by far the I'm sure the highest selling Bitcoin book that's ever been written. It's a fucking classic. Did you know you were really onto something special when you published it? Did it shock you? And what's the whole experience been like being a best selling author? No, it definitely shocked me. I definitely did not expect to do this, and I did not expect the people to like it this much. Because I mean, I wrote the Bitcoin Standard when I was um, thirty-seven, so it's it's not like I spent all my life being an author, a, a successful author. I always knew that I was a good writer back from school. You know, teachers would tell me that I was a good writer in university. I was a good writer. I could write well. But I never could get myself to sit down and focus and write anything proper. And being in academia was the equivalent of writer's block for life because you have to write according to certain standards and you have to write according to certain, you know, you have to believe the certain things that they tell you and you have to build on these things. And that's just very suffocating. And that's part of the reason why I couldn't write anything for about. I barely wrote anything in nine years as an academic, and the things that I did write were just not really good. I don't recommend anybody read any of my work before the Bitcoin stand. It wasn't really interesting. Well, maybe there was one paper on aviation that's kind of good. It's called Slowdown. But most of the time, it's just it was very difficult for me to write. And so I, I knew that I may have been a good writer, but I did not think of myself as a good writer in the sense of being able to sell books. And... um I wrote this thing because I had to write something to keep my job at the university. You know, in order to get promoted, you need to publish. And so I thought I'll just write about Bitcoin because that was the only thing that I'd been researching for the past few years. And it was the only thing I could write about. So I started writing about it. And I thought, well, um, I'll, I'll publish it and see what happens. And I did not expect it to succeed this much. I was, uh, I was pretty surprised. And there was an element of, oh, yeah. They actually like this book. They actually like my writing. And the, the, discovering that, well, maybe it wasn't just a good writer at the level of uh, school and university. Maybe I am actually good enough to be a professional writer to do this for a living. So that was a pretty big shock. And it's it's really shocking for me because it's um, I thought it would it would be an academic book that would sell a few copies. It might be popular with some Bitcoiners. I didn't expect it to get to the point where so many Bitcoiners and so many people, why not even Bitcoiners who are just interested in Bitcoin, are interested in it. And the real shock for me was um, that that was the moment when I realized, oh, wow, I've really done something special here. There was uh, It was in 2019. It was... Actually, I'm not even sure if it was 2018 or 2019. It was maybe a few months or a year after the book was, was out already. So it had already been out and people were buying it and still it it it, it hadn't really sunk in that it was such a good book uh, for me. And then this guy uh, emails me, someone I'd not, I had, I don't know, that he just found my email and emailed me. And he said he's... Um, He's uh, he's been reading Austrian Economist for 30, 40 years or something like that. He's got signed copies of books by um, Rothbard and a whole bunch of other economists in his library. And he's an older guy, and he doesn't even care about Bitcoin or digital currencies. He's just an, uh, a libertarian Austrian guy. And his son was in college, and his son was into digital currencies and stuff, and crypto. And his son came across the Bitcoin standard, and then he 
started reading it thinking it was a crypto book, but then he found all this rough bars and Mises stuff. And so he said, yeah, that these are the guys that my dad reads. So he told his dad about it and his dad read it. And even after he reading it, he still didn't care enough about Bitcoin. But he told me that th this, this was the moment that blew my mind. He told me in that email, he said, I've been reading Austrians and I've been reading economists for 30 years or something like that. I have a library full of these books. And I have to say, your book does a better job of explaining money than any of them does. Damn. And it just blew my mind then because I did not expect this That's to cool. be the case. So yeah, no, it, it really surprised me. One of the things I enjoyed most about the Bitcoin standard, besides obviously the educational aspects of it, was your complete devastating takedown of modern <laughs> art. And I just wanted to know if you had seen this on Twitter. It just it was it was yesterday. I think this popped up. It was a new uh spring water like it was basically let me see if I can share my screen with you here. Hold on a second. This I saw it. It's a, it's the fountain in Austria. This right, right here. Can you see it? Yes, the fountain in Austria with, with this horrible flute recording in the background. But this is just an encapsulation of your description of modern art. This looks like children put this together with Play-Doh. And then it was just thrown on a public square. What a complete and utter joke. Wow, dude, that is that is loud in my headset. That is Holy cow! I'll yeah, stop the, it. the music is as there the music go, is as annoying as the art itself. Yeah, it's so powerful. You just don't understand it, Dan. Yeah, it is. Anyway, that is that is a pedestal of what you were talking about there. I don't. I definitely did see it because here's the thing: there, uh, anytime any of these things get posted on Twitter, anywhere, someone or ten people are going to tag me, and I love it. Someone. Every time these things get posted, <laughs> and there's a few of these accounts. That just keep posting them. Uh, all of these culture, art, uh, history accounts—they keep posting those things and uh, say, you know, how how has art got it this way? And there's always at least five replies. <laughs> at Dean. check it out. Hey, Dean, this is what you were talking about <laughs> in your book. Hey, Dean, these are the DMV workers, and I absolutely love it. I love that I've become the authority on this stuff, and it's uh, it's uh, it's, uh, it's it's great. <laughs> I think it's it's very true, and I think it speaks to something that a lot of people know and feel, and they just are kind of intimidated because you don't want to look like you're the um, you're the, the ignorant guy who doesn't understand art. Everybody wants to pretend that they understand it, that they see the point behind it, and it's in a in a, in a sense, I'm like the boy who cried, "The emperor has no clothes here," and then everybody looks around. And, yeah, actually, he is just naked. I could do this stuff in 15 minutes. Right. I could splash that a bunch is of paint just a banana mattress. tape to a wall. Yeah, it is just a banana tape to a wall. And there are an infinite <laughs> number of stu such stupid ideas that anybody could do: taping an apple to a wall, taping an apple to the ground, taping an orange to the ceiling. There's an infinite number of those things, and it takes five minutes to think of them and to produce them. And there's nothing special about it. We need to mock the people who do them, call them idiots, instead of glorifying Absolutely. them. And uh, you know, uh, what what I find really, really perfect about this entire thing, what I really love about it is all the people who are extremely critical of me and all the people who just really upset about it and and they treat it like it's sacrilege. Like, how dare you call Damien Hirst uh, these names? How dare you call all of these artists whose names I forget from the book, which I mentioned? Uh, how, how dare you? Like, you don't understand this guy, Mark Rothko. You just don't understand Rothko. No, I fucking understand. You don't understand Rothko. And 
what's really amazing for me is how they think this is sacrilegious that you could call these people idiots when the entire fucking premise of modern art is just sacrilege. It's just sacrilege. That's what it is. Like, here's a museum where we put on display the amazing works of these incredible artists and sculptors who spent decades agonizing over a piece of marble in order to make it so beautiful, in order to make all these amazing features in it, and the people who spent years and years painting amazing paintings. And I'm just going to go and put a fucking banana on a wall and put it right next to that. And I'm going to tell you that it's the same thing. Like the entire thing is sacrilege. Your, 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 your entire idea of this is art is just sacrilege. That's it. That other yeah. Historically, art is something difficult and only the best artists get into the museums. And there's a competition by, you know, there's a lot of sculptors who worked really hard and never made it into museums because they just weren't as good as the Michelangelo's and the Leonardo's and all of the and highly accomplished painters and sculptors who did get into those museums. And now somehow you can just get in by putting in a bunch of clay or throwing a bunch of paint or doing all of that stuff. And somehow we are not allowed to be sacrilegious toward that sacrilege. And it's just such a perfect encapsulation of fiat life and fiat world where all of this stuff, all that they do is sacrilege. And of course, there's also the other aspect of sacrilege, which is that, you know, they, they, they'll put a statue of the Virgin Mary in a jar of piss or, or they'll put a cross <laughs> with Jesus on it and, so, uh, and put it around maggots or some shit like that. And, and as if that's it, so It sounds brave. like you have some modern art ruminating in there that you need to just get out. You need to get that art out. And you need to get that in a museum. None of that is original. Somebody is willing to take Somebody's that on done board. That stuff. So a lot of people have done it already. But so this is what really, really gets me. And I think for me, it's it, it it's the it, it it's the perfection of what I did with that book, which was in my uh, in my mind, it was like a work of modern art in a sense that these people will tell you we're gonna take the statue of the Virgin Mary and put it in the jar of piss. And that's so stunning and brave and powerful. And it speaks to something really profound. And if you don't understand it, that's because you're a fucking idiot. And now when I call these people idiots, now they turn into the religious conservatives. Like, how dare you call Mark Rothko an idiot for masturbating into the paint that he put into that painting? Like, how dare you insult our prophet? <laughs> It's just getting really interesting out there. Like I, I didn't even think about that. Like masturbating into the paint. Like Josh, you were we're saying you were saying you're about to paint your house. You should come into the fucking. Yeah, nobody will know but me. It'll be my little secret. Like, what do you think of the? What do you think of that pearlescent uh, white on the wall? It's good, isn't it? Benjamin Moore, (laughs) come, Josh, come blue. Um, too far, Dan. Too far. Yeah, safe. There were some fucking funny parts of the Bitcoin standard. They can be polarizing, but they are hilarious to read. And um, I I wanted to ask you that question from a second ago, because it's got to be weird to put pen to paper. You're in your own little world. You release this thing into the wild. And next thing you know, you're this world famous author with a with a classic. Now, I'm going to I'm going to say we told you this before we click recording. I think my favorite of your three books is Principles. Um, And you said you told us you spent more time on that than the other two combined? Is that what you were saying? You spent more time on principles than the fiat standard and Bitcoin standard combined? 
Yeah, possibly even more than the more than double the time that I spent on wow. the Bitcoin standard and the fiat standard. Yeah, I started working on principles as soon as I finished the Bitcoin standard and I got the idea for fiat standard and I wrote the fiat standard, published the fiat standard and all along I was still working on principles of economics. So it went I'm really from 2018 to 2022 or well, not 2023. Uh, it was about a four or five year project to get that thing done. It was a lot of work. Definitely worked really, really hard on it. So yeah, I would agree with you. It is, I'd say as a book, it is better. I'm not sure I would say I, my favorite. I think the Bitcoin stat is still my favorite because it was the first and it was um, a lot of, there was a little bit of spontaneity about it and just off mm. the cuff rawness, which I really like about it. And the fact that it was the first, it was, Really, it really changed my life as a book. Yeah. Uh, when people ask me what book changed your life, I mean, it really was the Bitcoin standard. It definitely changed my life in a very profound way. Uh, so maybe that's my favorite. But the principles. Uh, but I think, as if I were to be an objective critic, I'd say a, a fiat standard was better than the Bitcoin standard, and principles of economics was better than the fiat standards. Yeah, absolutely. I would not characterize any of your books as pissing into a jar on the Virgin Mary, but this last one was closer to a Rembrandt for sure. Thank you, sir. Safe. We won't keep you any longer, my friend. This was a blast. Um, Keep up the good work. Anything you want to say as a closer, as a handoff to our audience? Um, Thank you guys for having me. This was a lot of fun. It was good to uh, blow off some steam. I hope you guys don't mind uh, the red glasses, but uh, these... Light, no, we love them. Uh, can bother me, and this makes it easier. So I'll be doing more. Uh, I guess I'll be doing more podcasts if I can wear my red glasses. Um, so I maybe can start getting used to it. And thanks so much for having me, guys. And thanks for all the banter <laughs> and all the fun. Safe, could you give us a give us an idea of where to find your resources, your website, your books? Yeah, uh, safeatdean.com is my website. I teach online courses on that website. So there's a Bitcoin Standard Online course, there's a Fiat Standard Online course, and there's now the Principles of Economics Online course, which is uh, in uh, Lecture 4 now, Chapter 4. So it's an 18-chapter book. We're doing one chapter every two weeks, and there's a new lecture that gets posted every two weeks, and then we have a weekly seminar where we discuss the topic of the lecture. So join as a member of safety.com. It's my sort of university replacement for the digital age where you don't have to show up and you don't have to go through all of the bullshit politics and uh, paying crazy money for university, Fiat University. It's uh, just a simple membership and you join the seminars online and we've got, um, and then you get a copy of the book, a digital copy of the book. And I'm on Twitter at Safedine, uh well x.com I should say now. Uh you can and you can also check out my new publishing house where I am uh, publishing my books. So the principles of economics and fiat standard I self-published. And now I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's new book, um Broken Money. So you can get it from Amazon and paperback and hardback, but you could also get it from uh my website in beautiful cloth hardcover. High, uh, low time preference uh, cloth hardcover and also Fiat Food this new book that I helped co-write with Matthew Lysiak which discusses how people in the 20th century who use Fiat money ended up eating garbage as food it's a very 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 fascinating uh, 
investigation into this story. I highly recommend that book. And so, and you can also get those and the Bitcoin Standard, all of them in a package from the safehouse.com, the safe, S A I F house.com. Hey, um, an idea for you for, for Lynn's book or, or any of your books. Can we get a cast iron cover on the broken, on broken money? Cast iron front and back. Yeah. I think that'll sell. That motherfucker will sell and it'll cook no. steaks. L- Lynn, Lynn is a stainless steel maxi like me. She's on my mm. team. Yeah. Wow. Sorry that's, to break that's it That's another you. dagger, Josh. That one hurts. We're really going to have to think this one through. All right. Well, yeah. Back we'll, to the drawing we'll board with skillets. Safe. Fuck you. <laughs> God damn it. All right, Safe, man. Thank you for, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Take care, guys. Take care. Bye. Safe is such a character. We absolutely enjoyed talking with him, and we hope you enjoyed listening. Leave us a review on your pod app of choice if you get the chance. We appreciate it. If you haven't tried out Fountain for listening to podcasts, we recommend it. You can get paid sats while you listen to your favorite podcasts. All right, until next time, thanks for listening.